All right, everybody back? Oh, you're back, okay. Um, okay, let me get my, make sure I got my, everybody, this time you might want to look at these charts. The, oh, I don't have the other side on this one. The back side that has all the little pictures, you might want to study that at home. But, but this is the main one we'll be looking at in the second part of this second session, so you just have it handy and look at that when I get to talking about it. <clears throat> All right, Father, thank you for the food. Thank you for the fellowship. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your word, your eternal word that is so deep, so rich, so full of joy and lessons and meaning and truth and it's just precious, precious to us. I wish all the world knew how exciting the Bible really is, how it is a living book and it is just as true for the generations in which it was written as it is for us today and will be in, in the future. Just ever progressive revelation that you give as you do through the book of Ruth. So many new things coming to light that people in the past did not know about. And so I ask that you would use me to speak clearly um, and quickly and that the, the women's minds would be able to understand everything that your spirit through me is trying to convey to them because it is so exciting. And I want them to leave here again, hope it, hopefully with spiritual heartburn, that they'll want to share what they've heard this morning with their families and their friends and just with anyone they come into contact with so other people can get excited and maybe this land can go into a, a stage of repentance and that you would be merciful to us. But now I ask again that your spirit would be the teacher and that you would have your will and way and most of all, that your son, the Lord Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, would be glorified in this next hour. For we pray in his name. Amen. Continuing now with fields and feet in chapter 3. Naomi, who was the parent figure for Ruth, decided that it was time to get involved in a little... Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, <laughs> catch me. You know, she was a Jewish mother, so uh, she was going to get involved. And I think it's commendable to know Naomi that she wasn't the kind that said, I don't want her to marry anyone else. My son was the best husband ever, and um, she should just remain a widow the rest of her life. She didn't feel like that. She wanted the best for Boaz, uh, for her daughter-in-law, and so she was going to get busy finding her a match, a catch, a real catch. She obviously had seen how Boaz and Ruth had an interest in one another. So she, now I do want to point out one thing that I think a lot of people miss. It says, and I don't have my Bible open, I put it away so I'd have more room up here, but it does say that she worked for Boaz for the barley harvest and the summer harvest, right? So she worked the whole summer in his field. And then when you get into this next part, and maybe you can find the verse, but it says when it was the barley harvest. Do you see that, Terry? Anyway, it tells us that it's again the barley harvest, the night that she goes to the threshing floor and lays at the feet of Boaz. So do you know what that tells us? A year. 
They have now known each other for a year, so this wasn't a fast thing. They've been observing each other and spending time with each other for a whole year. So Naomi sees the mutual interest and then she gets involved in this. So she sp speaks to Ruth about seeking rest so that it will be well with her. And again, as I mentioned, this speaks of the rest of security in a married relationship and possibly the rest of motherhood. Ruth was in poverty. <clears throat> she was a widow. She was a stranger. She was a Gentile. She truly needed the rest that Naomi was speaking about. Naomi, of course, being Jewish, she understood all the Jewish customs. So she was able to give Ruth specific instructions about coming to Boaz. And that's very interesting because Gentiles who come to Christ come through the Jewish witness of him in the Old Testament scriptures. Right? Naomi represents Israel. She's telling Ruth how to come to Boaz, Christ. And that's exactly how it works. You know, the Jew first. They wrote the Old Testament. All the New Testament apostles were what? Jewish. So we come to Christ through the Jewish witness. It was the end of the harvest season. Um, it, well, now we're back into the uh, barley season. And it was the time for threshing and winnowing the harvest in order to separate the grain from the stalk and from the chaff. Boaz has shown special interest in Ruth, and now it is finally time for Ruth to show Boaz that she reciprocates the interest. You know, she's probably been holding back and shy and all that sort of thing. So the first thing Naomi tells Ruth is to go doll herself all up. She says, and this is good advice, you know, if you're seeking a husband, get yourself clean, um, wash up, put a little makeup on, you know, uh, maybe pinch your cheeks so they're nice and rosy, and um, uh, put on your, new, your best clothes, maybe spray a little perfume, fix your hair real nice, and then you're, she's to go to the place of the threshing floor and stay hidden, don't let Boaz see you, wait for him to lay down on the threshing floor to sleep near the grain in order to, he'd sleep near a pile of grain that they had done that day's work, threshing and winnowing, um, and he would sleep near it in order to protect it from thieves coming in. <clears throat> and so Ruth was, this is Naomi's plan, Ruth is to go privately, quietly, unseen, to where he lay down, to spend the night, wait till he's sleeping, go to him, and then uncover his feet. Here's the feet. <laughs> and she's to lay by his feet and wait for his response when he woke up and found her laying there. <laughs> now this was, you know, this sounds really strange to us, doesn't it? But this, this was kind of a Jewish custom, sort of a marriage proposal kind of a custom, not always, but, and it was usually the other way around. It was usually the man, you know, asking the woman, but in this case, you know, she was tired of waiting. So basically she's telling Ruth, it's been a year, 
you go and propose to him. Probably because he was older, he probably thought, well, she's not going to be interested in me. Because he's probably 20 years older, roughly, maybe. <laughs> in complete compliance and trust in her mother-in-law's advice, Ruth said, all that thou sayest unto me, I will do. All right, so she says to her mother-in-law, I will do. Whatever you said, I will do. You know what she had said earlier? She said, I will go. Those were two critical decisions in her life, weren't they? I will go and I will do. And she did. She did exactly what her mother-in-law told her to do. She cleaned herself all up to look her best like a bride without spot or blemish going to meet her bridegroom. She went up to the threshing floor. Now the threshing floors were usually on a high place because then they would winnow and they needed uh, the wind, you know, for the, for the winnowing. And she waited till Boaz finished his work and went to sleep on the threshing floor and she uh, uncovered his feet and then she laid there. I doubt she went to sleep. <laughs> down there at his feet. But uh, at midnight, of course, you know, now his feet are cold and everything, and he wakes up suddenly and, and he says, who's at my feet? You'd do the same thing, wouldn't you? What in the world is going on? Somebody's down there by my feet. And he says, who art thou? It was dark, so he couldn't see. And she quickly puts him at ease by saying, uh, identifying herself, saying that she is his handmaid. And then she asked him to spread his cloak over her. This is the proposal part, okay? And she referred to him as her near kinsman. I know that sounds really weird, but she is indeed proposing to him. Spreading the cloak over her was a figure of speech used in a kinsman-redeemer marriage proposal. Read Ezekiel 16:8. And she didn't have to wait very long to hear his response. You know, it's like, no, I wonder if he's going to say yes or no. What is he going to do? Because immediately he said to her, blessed be thou of the Lord. That's in verse 10. I'm in chapter 3. Did I tell you that? He thought Ruth worthy of God's praise for the marriage that she was seeking. He addressed her, interestingly, as my daughter. At least he didn't say my handmaid. He calls her my daughter. Now, that is a term of endearment. But it also shows us that there was indeed an age difference here. And he said to her, For thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether rich or poor. In other words, he's saying, You know, probably when I first met you a year ago, I thought for sure you'd go after some of the young guys. Handsomer, you know, younger whatever, whether they're rich or poor, I just thought that you would do that. But, um, you know, she was more, this is, this is good marital advice too. You could use this lesson for young people to teach them about having a good work ethic and you could teach them too about what to look for in a spouse. Very wise that she wanted a man, didn't matter his age, she wanted a man with character, with integrity, and uh, with faith, more than youth and flesh. Besides, she'd already gone that route, hadn't she? <laughs> the younger, the first husband was young, and he was compromised, wasn't he? Because he shouldn't have married her. He was weak and puny. <laughs> the second husband is older, strong, strong in character, strong in faith, strong in wisdom. Boaz now demonstrated his love for her by telling her not to fear, because all she had asked of him 
um, in other words, uh, the proposal, he would do. All that she had asked, he would do. He would marry her. And his reason was, what? Because you're so beautiful? No, because you're a virtuous woman. And that's what a guy should look for in a woman. Outward beauty fades, but inner beauty doesn't. It just gets more and more beautiful. And it actually works its way out from the inside to the out. And so you should tell your sons and your grandsons, if they're looking for a woman, don't go by the beauty. I mean, if she's got some and she's godly inside, that's double bonus, but it doesn't matter. Look for a virtuous woman. And that's why he's interested in her, because she's virtuous. He told her to remain safely hidden with him until early dawn, and then she should leave before anybody would see her. What is he doing? Well, he's protecting her reputation. Now, nothing went on that night, okay? He is a picture of Christ. She's a picture of the church. This was above board. But you will read commentaries that say, oh, you know, uncovering the feet meant uncovering something else, blah, 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 blah. It's not true. It's a bunch of baloney. People always want to criticize scripture. This was wholesome. He, he wouldn't be worried about her reputation if something else had gone on. Um, but he didn't, he didn't want anybody to see her leaving and misunderstand what might have happened. But then, before she leaves in the morning, he did have one piece of information he needed to share with her. He did tell her that was, uh, there was an issue he needed to overcome. There was another kinsman nearer than himself to Elimelech. Maybe a first cousin, I don't know. Maybe Boaz was a second cousin. Whatever it was, there was another guy who had first rights to redeem the land that belonged to Elimelech and sell it, you know, and give the money to Naomi. And this other man would also have first right to fulfill the Leveret marriage law concerning Ruth. But Boaz promised Ruth that he would personally and promptly, in the morning, he would speak to that unnamed, nearer kinsman and take care of the situation, whatever you know, was going to be, would be. But then what he does is he loads her up with so much grain. Remember, he's sleeping at that pile. <laughs> he, he loads her up with so much that in the morning, early morning, when she would leave, it was so much, she would literally have to carry it on her shoulders. Now, when Ruth came to Naomi very early in the morning with her heavy load of grain, she did not need to wake Naomi up. Her mother-in-law probably did not sleep at all that night, you know, anxiously praying and wondering how things were going. But when she sees her daughter-in-law approaching with a load of six measures of grain, <laughs> you know, she really did her happy dance. <laughs> she must have been ecstatic. <laughs> And yet, she, she remained calm. She wanted to do the happy dance, but she said, okay, you know, ooh-wee, we're going to have a wedding soon. But she said, be still, just like God, be still, know that God's in control. She says, be still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man Boaz will not be in rest until he have finished this, the thing this day. She knew this guy really wanted to marry her, and he was going to make it work out. She knew how much he cared for Ruth and also that he wasn't going to waste any time. Now, sure enough, first thing he does, 
He does what he said he would do. He contacts the nearer kinsmen. He collects 10 witnesses, <clears throat> uh, elders of Bethlehem, and he meets with all of them at the city gate, which is what they would do when they were making a deal of some kind. So Boaz, um, he, he wanted to buy the land of Elimelech for Naomi, and he wanted to purchase Ruth to be his wife. There were three basic qualifications to be a kinsman redeemer. Number one, you must be related. You must be a relative. That's why Christ took upon himself the likeness of man, so he could be mankind's redeemer. You know, he could redeem us. And secondly, not only must you be related to be a kinsman redeemer, but you must be willing. Boaz was willing. Christ was willing. They both loved, you know, Christ loved the church. Boaz loved Ruth. Christ was willing to sacrifice himself for his bride. He, uh, the third thing, you must have the money. You must have the redemption price. Well, Boaz was mighty in wealth, wasn't he? He had the money. That was no problem. Christ didn't pay for our redemption with money. Something better than silver or, or gold. What did he pay for us, the church? He paid with his own precious blood. Well, as it turned out, the nearer kinsman was related to Elimelech. That's check number one. He qualified to be the kinsman because he was related. And number two, he was willing. He was willing to buy Elimelech's land. Willing, partway willing. But when he found out there were strings attached, <laughs> that he must also marry Ruth the Moabitess, to keep alive the name of Malon, her deceased first husband, by giving her a child to continue on with Malon's name, continue on Puny's name, uh, the nearer kinsman said this. He said, I cannot redeem. Now, it says it in the Bible, but if you notice, it is in parentheses, which means in the original, he says twice, I cannot redeem. I cannot redeem. You see, he wanted the land, but he didn't want the lady. He wanted the field, but not the female. You know why? He said it would mar his own inheritance. So he gave up his right to be the Goel, and he gave it up to Boaz. He handed him his shoe. <laughs> so they made a shoe seal, a shoe seal the deal. Um, and Boaz then gladly, and that was like shaking hands, I guess, to hand somebody your shoe. I wonder if he got it back. But Boaz then gladly paid in full the redemption price for both the land and the lady, for the field and for the female. Now, it has been pointed out, and this is exciting, that the nearer kinsman and Boaz represent the contrast between the law and grace. The nearer kinsman, who's not named, represents the law in that the law cannot redeem. The law cannot redeem Naomi, Israel. The law cannot redeem Ruth, the church. The law cannot redeem, redeem Jew or Gentile. The law can't redeem anybody. It simply cannot mercifully save someone without marring the holiness of the law. 
Galatians 2.16 says, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, or you could say redeemed. On the other hand, Boaz represents divine grace. Unlike the law, God's grace can redeem. It doesn't break the law, it fulfills the law. How? How is that possible? Well, the law requires that sin be punished. The Lord is holy and he is just, therefore sin must be punished or he's not just. But he's also merciful. So he took care of solving this dilemma by paying the price for sin himself. Why did he do that? Because of love. The driving force for Boaz to pay the redemption price for Ruth was his great love for her. And this also so wonderfully pictures our salvation. Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us. Ephesians 5.25 says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Boaz gave of himself and his wealth to Mary Ruth because he loved her. You know what she was to him? She was the pearl of great price that he found in his field. You know that parable about the pearl of great price? It's about Christ finding the church. The church is the pearl. Well, let's move on to family and future. A beautiful thing about the book of Ruth, which is like a bright, shining diamond in one of the darkest times for Israel. You know the book of Ruth comes between judges and the kings. It actually is like... Um, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? A transition book. Did I already say this earlier? Can't remember what I said yesterday and what I'm saying today. Okay. It's a transition between the time of the judges, because the book of Ruth was written at the very end of the book of Judges, that time period. But when you finish the book of Ruth, it ends with telling the genealogy of, you know, Boaz, and then they had Obed and Jesse, and then David. So it ends with King David, and that transitions you into the monarchy period of Israel. So Ruth is right in between. But she, the book itself is like a diamond in a very dark time, because Israel didn't even do too great in the, <laughs> in the monarchy years either. Um, but yet... Ruth has a really happy ending. It began with death, and yet it ends with life. Because Ruth and Boaz get married, and they're blessed with a little boy. So you see, the problem with not having children was not Ruth's fault, was it? it must have been Puny's fault. <laughs> they're blessed with a little boy, and they name him what? What do they name him? Obed. Obed. Now, it is interesting that there are four men whose births in Bethlehem are recorded for us in the scripture. Four men. Now, there were lots of men born in Bethlehem, of course. But there's only four men whose births in Bethlehem are recorded in the word of God. <clears throat> the first was Benjamin. Remember Benjamin? He's Jacob's last son. And when Benjamin was born, what happened to his mother? 
She died delivering him. Rachel died delivering Benjamin. And as she's dying, she names him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob, his father, didn't want the little guy to go around his whole life being called son of my sorrow. So he changed his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Those are two names. Benjamin actually had two names which reveal the roles of Christ at his two comings because the first time Christ came, he was the man of sorrows. Second time he will come, he will be the ascended son of God who rightfully sits at his right hand. So Benjamin is the first male whose birth is recorded in the scripture. Then the second one is the one we're reading about, Obed. And his name means servant of God. Now that's another title for Christ. At his first coming, he came as the servant of God to do God's will, to seek and to save that which was lost and to die for mankind. Then there is David, King David. He was born in Bethlehem, which is why it's called the city of Bethlehem. His name in Hebrew means beloved. He was Israel's most beloved king, which Christ will be at his second coming when he sits on the throne of David forever. Now, of course, the most important birth in scripture uh, of someone born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, was the bread of life himself, Jesus, Yeshua. And his name means what? Savior. So if we put the four Bethlehem birth names together, we have son of sorrows, servant of God, his two names at his first coming, beloved king, son of my right hand, Two names at his second coming, and altogether he is Savior. Savior. Now, there is another bit of interesting information about Boaz that I want to give you before we get into the prophetic significance of this book. Boaz. If you look at Boaz's genealogy in the final verses of this book, look at verse 21 of chapter 4. <clears throat> it tells us that Salmon begat Boaz. You see that? Verse 21, chapter 4. Now, <clears throat> there may be a, a generation missing or two missing in this genealogy, and Scripture sometimes does this purposely uh, for different reasons. But one way or another, Salmon was either the father of Boaz or the grandfather of Boaz. Now, do you know who Salmon was? If you go to Jesus' genealogy recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, and if you look at chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, you will find out that Salmon was a Jewish man from the tribe of Judah, the tribe that Jesus came from, and Salmon married a Canaanite woman named Rahab, the harlot. When you, put, when you take the time to put scripture together, and if you think genealogies are boring, they can just give you so much enlightenment. Boaz's mother, or his grandmother, one or the other, was Rahab, the former harlot, who hid the spy, Jewish spies in her apartment, in the Battle of Jericho, because she believed in Yahweh. Now do you understand why Boaz was no respecter of persons when he saw 
the Moabite girl in his field and didn't care as long as she believed in the true God. Amazing, isn't it? You want to shut the door? <laughs> We've got some excited kids out there. All right, well, speaking, and, and this, you know what, it is so exciting to find that God's, that Christ's genealogy includes five women, five women, which was unusual because usually they just give the men, you know, the fathers and the grandfathers, etc. But his genealogy has five women, and they were, so many of them were, well, like Tamar, she was a Canaanite who dressed as a prostitute in order to get Judah to fulfill the Leveret marriage law, and I won't get into all of that, but um, she, he, Judah, you know, yeah. the tribe of Judah, he wound up saying that she was more righteous than him. Tamar is in the lineage of Christ. She was a Gentile. And then there's um, Rahab, who was a harlot, but she came to believe in Christ and was in his lineage. And then you have Ruth, and you've got Bathsheba. Bathsheba didn't have any choice in the matter with David, right? She didn't. And then you have Mary. Mary, a virgin, and yet she's pregnant. Aren't you glad Mary didn't have an abortion? Aren't you glad Joseph didn't tell her, oh, we've got to get rid of this kid, have an abortion? But is it, five is the number of grace. Jesus, you see, is the savior of Jew and Gentile, isn't he? And of women and men and everybody. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Now, we're going to get, oh, I want to finish with one more thing. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, speaking of grandmothers, because perhaps Rahab was Boaz's grandmother, Naomi, when she held that little baby Obed in her arms, her bitterness was gone. She was now Grandma Pleasant. Not Grandma Bitter. She was Grandma Pleasant. And the happy ending of the book of Ruth pictures the gospel, which likewise brings a good and happy ending to the lives of those who accept it. It doesn't matter what happens in your life. You are promised a happy ending if you have accepted the gospel. The gospel is seen in the redemption of Ruth, and Naomi by Boaz and by the new birth pictured by Obed. You see, the new birth is what assures a good ending in life. Amen? So I hope everyone in here has experienced the new birth by your faith in Christ. Prophetic significance now of the book of Ruth. Now, as I mentioned in the first session, gave you a little teaser there, this book is full of not only prophet, providential significance, but prophetical. Most people, of course, acknowledge the romantic, redemptive love story of Boaz and Ruth, that it is an Old Testament prophetic picture of Christ and his bride, the church. But do you know when the book of Ruth was written, which was way back in the days of the judges, and people read this book, they didn't know it was prophetic about Christ and the church. They didn't even know what the church was. It was a mystery until the New Testament. So don't think that what I'm gonna tell you today is really strange, because nobody ever really, well, there are people beginning to see this now. Um, but it, it's, you know, the Bible is living 
and its progressive revelation. And as history unfolds itself, we see more and more meaning in some of these Old Testament stories. So that's what we're going to see this morning. You see, there's an even larger panorama of prophetic revelation to be gleaned. I had to purposely use that word from this historical st story, even though a lot of this has been hidden until just recently. So in most commentaries that you will pick up on the book of Ruth, very little, if any, attention is given to the prophetic aspect of Naomi. Things generally center on Ruth and Boaz, but there is another beautiful love story in the book, and it's between Naomi and Ruth, and in fact, there's yet another beautiful love story, redemptive love story, between Boaz and Naomi. So it truly is a Trinitarian love story. You see, since the return of a remnant of Jewish people to the land of Israel, after almost 2,000 years of their very sad and bitter experience in Gentile lands, it has become more evident how Naomi fits into the prophetic revelation of the book of Ruth. She is a picture of Israel from the time she first, from the time Israel first lived as a nation in the promised land given to her by God in his covenant promise to the patriarchs. Although she should have been spiritually fruitful and prosperous in the land flowing with milk and honey, she seldom was. She did evil during the period of the judges. She didn't do a whole lot better under the monarchy. She continually turned to idolatry, and she continuously rejected her God-sent prophets. And ultimately, what did she even do? She rejected and crucified her own Messiah. The spiritual famine upon the land was her own fault. She was dispersed into the nations. The message that she was to witness to the nations, which is that God is king, that message died just as Elimelech died. Malon and Kilion, the sons, they depict the condition of Israel during her extended stay in Gentile lands. Puny and pining, weak, and whiny. Israel's pleasantness turned to bitterness, and it, was, it has been one long, prolonged period of sorrow for Israel, of pining away, and of graves. Naomi's sons were unequally yoked in their marriages, which pictures Israel's spiritual adultery with the world. Both sons remain childless, which symbolizes Israel's lack of spiritual fruit. Like their father, the sons died outside of the promised land, which presents yet another picture of Israel's spiritual condition. 
she is dead. Yes, according to Ezekiel's prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones, she's returned to the land, at least a remnant, like Naomi was just a remnant. And the bones have come together, and she looks alive, but what is she spiritually? She's still spiritually dead. She does not have the breath of life. She hasn't been born again. She is dead. Naomi suffered tragedy upon tragedy, sorrow upon sorrow, as her family was greatly reduced in number. Interestingly, Isaiah, who wrote about Israel's future redemption in the land after spending centuries living among the heathen people in Gentile lands, Israel spoke of that time living in heathen lands as the time of her widowhood. From Israel's beginning as a nation, when God gave her the law, he had warned her to obey him and to keep his commandments. Otherwise, he said he would scatter her to the nations. For example, in Leviticus chapter 26, he said, If ye will not hearken to me, and will not do my commandments, I will scatter you among the heathens. And your land shall be desolate, and ye shall perish among the heathen. And they that are left of you shall pine away, that's the name Kilion, in your iniquity, in your enemies' lands. And yet, while Naomi was out of her land bitter, and in all of her misery and suffering, God was providentially preparing from among the Gentiles a bride for Israel's kinsman redeemer. Because of the connection between Israel and her daughter-in-law, the church, Israel's kinsman redeemer would also be kinsman redeemer of the bride. Now let me stop and explain that a minute. I put this up on the board if you can see it. Israel is wed to God the Father. God's Son, Jesus Christ, is wed to the church. So what is the relationship between Israel and the church? What? Mother-in-law? daughter-in-law. No better example between, you know, to say mother-in-law and daughter-in-law for Israel's connection with the church. So the kinsman redeemer of Israel would be one and the same kinsman redeemer of the church. He would be the strong one born in fruitful, the fruitful house of bread, the one named Jesus, Savior. So where are we today in this prophetic panorama of history that was presented so long ago in the little book of Ruth. Well, we are in the time of the summer harvest of the church age. We, and we know this because Israel, pictured by Naomi, Israel is where? She is back in the land today even though only a fraction of the whole Jewish family worldwide has returned, yet Naomi is back in the land today. 
but the land has not yet been redeemed and fully restored to her because she has not yet recognized her kinsman redeemer, her Goel. Ruth, the church, is still here. Ruth is still busily gleaning in the fields of Boaz, Christ. As right now, Naomi sits quietly at home, still not bearing any fruit. Who's doing all the work right now? Ruth, the church, gleaning in the fields of Boaz. But thanks to the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the love of Christ, Ruth or Boaz, Ruth is supping with him today at his table, enjoying his provision and his protection. And he even has provided us, the church, Ruth, at various times in our history with handfuls on purpose. Occasionally, he gives us great revivals to encourage us. I pray for handfuls of purpose, Lord, today. He satisfies our thirst, and he has accepted us even though we were strangers, most of us. <laughs> most of us aren't Jewish. Um, to his covenant promises. He has grafted us into his family by redeeming us and making us his betrothed bride. He bestows on us his abundant love and blessings um, for having chosen to follow Naomi's people, the Jews, in the faith of Yahweh. He loves the church because we followed Israel's, and you know, the steps, we wanted Israel's God to be our God, didn't we? And he is. And he loves us because we chose him over choosing fleshly younger gods, with a small g, that the world finds so appealing. Most of the world goes after the younger gods, don't they? Boaz especially appreciated this one. He especially appreciates, now you could say Christ especially appreciates the church because she is a compassionate and faithful friend to Naomi, to Israel. What a message that should be today on how important it is for the church to be Israel's compassionate and faithful friend to help her in her old age. Who is older, Israel or the church? Israel. You know, there should be a Naomi-Ruth relationship, love relationship between Israel and the church. Even though Israel's been chastened, she is beloved of God. He used her to bring us, Ruth, the church, to our Redeemer. If nothing else, we should love her for that. We are to cleave to her through thick and thin until our Redeemer redeems her, which he will, just as Boaz did with Naomi. You see, if there is one stick-to-it, compassionate friend that Israel should have in this world, it should be the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? But sadly, I am so upset about it, so much of the church, the church, Christendom, is like Orpah. 
and has left Naomi. No, we are to cleave to Israel, just like Ruth did with Naomi. We alone in all the world genuinely should understand God's program for Israel and his ultimate plan to keep his promises to her, his covenant promises to her, and fully restore her, her inheritance and redeem her to himself. You see, if you don't believe God's going to fulfill his promises to Israel, what hope have we got that he's going to fulfill his promises to us? Of course he's going to keep his promises to Israel. Although the inspired writings of Moses foretold of Israel's dispersion and her suffering in heathen lands if she failed to hear him, which she did, especially when she refused to hear him speak through his only begotten son, Yet those same inspired Mosaic writings, now you think of Moses many, many, many years ago, those same inspired writings also foretold of the time Israel, Israel would return to the land and would be delivered. Again, if you look at Leviticus chapter 26, God said, I will not cast my people away to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them. Could that be any clearer? I am not going to cast them away utterly and just forget about my promises? No way. In Ezekiel 36, he said, For I will take you from the heathen lands and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land, and ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. He's, he's, we're, we're actually seeing that. You know, you talk about miracles. We are seeing a miracle. God is keeping his promises made way back in the days of Moses and on and on and on, even through the book of Ruth, that he has returned. There was a resurrection from the dead when Israel went back to the land. Never has a nation that died been resurrected back to life, but that happened in 1948, May 14th. Every year I ask everybody in my family when it's May 14th, I say, do you know whose birthday it is today? And they always forget. Every year, I said, can't anybody remember? It's Israel's birthday, May 14th, 1948. A basic, to me, a basic requisite for a true, and, and this isn't just for me, this is true, a true and pop, proper understanding. If you really want to understand eschatology, end times prophecy, you have to understand the difference between Israel and the church and God's redemptive future plans for Israel and the church. Until that difference is understood, there is just gonna be a thick fog of confusion. You see, there is this theology about, and it's in much of the church, that is called replacement theology. And it teaches that God is finished with Israel, kaput. He is not going to keep his promises to Israel. That Israel has been replaced by the church. Now the church is Israel. So when you read about Israel in the New Testament, it really means the church. That is not true. Don't fall for that. Naomi did not surrender her position to Ruth, and Ruth did not replace Naomi. It was simply that while Naomi was in a place of divine judgment for her family's lack of faith in God as king, 
that Ruth was brought into the picture to meet and to marry Boaz, God's son. And then Naomi was restored. God isn't finished. It says in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel shall be saved. After the tribulation, you know, during the tribulation, many, many Jewish people will come to faith in Christ. Many Gentiles will be, that will be handfuls of purpose. That would be a great, a lot of them will have to be martyred, but that will be a great revival on planet Earth during the tribulation. But at the end of it, when Christ returns at his second coming, she will, Israel, corporate Israel, will look upon him whom she pierced, and she will mourn for him as the only begotten son of God, and Israel shall be saved. Naomi will be restored. She will acknowledge her kinsman redeemer. Re Naomi returned with Ruth, Ruth to Israel at what time? What time was it in the summer harvest, right? <laughs> it was the time of the harvest. But she did not receive back her lost estate. Naomi didn't at that time. To have it restored to her again, a kinsman must be found willing to redeem it for her. But Naomi's land redemption did not take place until after the harvest ended and the night of threshing and winnowing was past. Both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ used the harvest and the threshing and winnowing of the grain to picture God's judgment, his separation judgment of the righteous from the wicked. The threshing floor in scripture speaks of a place of separation. A threshing floor was where the harvest grain was prepared by separating the true grain from the useless straw for the purpose of collecting the valuable part of the crop. Do you know that, this, that Solomon's temple was actually built on a threshing floor? Do you remember that part of history? David bought the threshing floor from Aruna to build the temple. And that's where the Mosque of Omar sits today. And that's where they want to build their tribulation temple is on a threshing floor. In Bible times, grain was threshed either by animals, oxen, even sometimes pulling carts is in that picture, um, so that they would trample on and crush the stalks of grain um, and you know separate the stalks from the actual grain. Or it would be threshed by humans. If you see in the upper corner, that's Ruth, you know, hand threshing with a stick. She would beat it, beat the stalks to break apart the grain from the husks. The inedible part, the chaff, was separated from the edible grain. And after the hard work of threshing, then the final separation was done by casting the grain into the air on a windy night so that the inedible lightweight chaff was blown away where it would be later swept together and burned and the, 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 the heavier weight grain wouldn't blow away, it would fall to the ground and they would gather it up and barn it. So you see the righteous are gonna be barned, the unrighteous are gonna be burned. The edible heavier grain didn't blow away. Um, okay, and that's the process called winnowing. The time of the tribulation on earth 
is going to be a time of great threshing floor judgment when the true grain is separated from the worthless chaff. Now I want to take you, get your little charts here, to Leviticus chapter 23. This is the main chapter in scripture, Leviticus chapter 23, very important part of scripture. It is the chapter of God's instructions concerning his seven feast days for Israel. And they are presented in chronological order as they were to be celebrated. First, you will find in chapter 23 of Leviticus, God giving instructions to Israel regarding her first four spring feasts, which were Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, which is also called in Greek Pentecost. And then, and you know something important if you look at the other side of your little um, handout there, Something important in Christ's life happened on every one of those feast days. So we know, you know, as scripture progressed, when God gave these feast days, nobody knew that this was going to spell out prophecy concerning Christ and his redemptive plan for both Israel and the church. But we now know from hindsight that they were very significant because Christ did die on Passover, didn't he, as the Passover lamb. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because he had no leaven in him. He was sinless. He was buried in the ground during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but then he rose again on the Feast of First Fruits, because he is the first fruit of the resurrection. And then, uh, you know, 50 days later, what was it? The Feast of Pentecost, and the church was born. Okay, so we know prophetically that there is significance in these seven feast days. So the spring feasts are already fulfilled Well, then, beginning in verse 24, and to the end of the chapter, the Lord gave instructions about the three fall feasts, which are Feast of Trumpets. What do you think that might signify? The rapture of the church and then the gathering of Israel. I really do believe that the rapture is going to happen. And you know, they never know. The Feast of Trumpets is one of those holidays that they cannot determine exactly when it happens because of the moon thing. And so it's either like one of two or three days that it could be. So don't go and tell me, well, no man knows the day or the hour. Right? <laughs> um, and the day of atonement is when Christ is going to come at his second coming and Israel will finally be atoned because she will believe on him. And then you know what the Feast of Booths is? Or the Feast of Tabernacles? That is when we will all live together with Christ in one big giant booth during the millennial kingdom. Now, what is really interesting is that right smack dab in the middle of the list of the seven feasts, actually right between the four spring feasts and the three fall feasts, is verse 22. Verse 22. I skipped over that one because it just doesn't seem to belong there. What is it about? Well, it's about God's gleaning law. His gleaning law, all of a sudden in the middle of the seven feasts. Um, This law is about his gracious provision for the poor and for the widowed 
and for the strangers, the foreigners, to Israel, like Ruth, who he permitted to glean from the harvest of Israel so that they could have food to eat. Now, this gleaning law verse had already been stated just a few chapters earlier. If you look at Leviticus 19.9, the gleaning law is there. So why is it repeated again here in Leviticus 23.22? And why is it smack dab in the middle of God's famous chapter about the seven Jewish feast days? In fact, it's right between his instructions about the last spring feast of Pentecost and the first fall feast of trumpets. Well, one thing I know is that everything in scripture is purposeful. This verse just didn't happen to be here. It was put here for a reason. Another thing I know is that this whole chapter, Leviticus 23, has great prophetic value. All of those feast days are so important in God's overall redemptive plan. The life of Christ and his plan for Israel and his plan for the church. Therefore, we can, can assume, we can conclude that the harvest gleaning verse right there between the Feast of Pentecost and Trumpets is significant. So we ask the question, what has actual history shown us comes in that gap of time between the spring feasts and the fall feasts? It's where we are today, the church age, the time of harvesting. I believe that God put this verse between Pentecost and Trumpets because he was indicating what he was going to do between the fulfillment of those two feasts. Between the spring and the fall feasts, there's a gap of almost four months. Prophetically, that summer gap speaks of the church age, which began on Pentecost and I believe will end on the Feast of Trumpets. And what has the Lord been doing during this summer gap of time? Precisely what he told Israel to do, Leviticus 23:22. His command to Israel was basically step aside and leave the gleanings of my field to the poor and to the foreigner, the non-Jew. Ten days after the Lord's ascension on Shavuot, Feast of week, the, uh, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was imparted, came and indwelled all believers in him. It began the church age when primarily non-Jews are gleaning from what Israel planted. And this age continues today. It is the age of God's grace to the Ruths of this world. And it will continue until the day the trumpet sounds. And I believe we are very, very, very close to the end of the harvest age. Naomi is back in the land. Ruth is still here. And the gleanings are getting thinner and thinner. Yes, every once in a while, throws out handfuls of purpose to encourage us. But the gleaning law found in the middle of the feast also connects the reader of scripture to the little small book of Ruth, doesn't it? When you hear about the gleaning law, it takes you to the story of Ruth and Boaz. 
And it further confirms that that little book is prophetic, a prophetic picture of the church and Israel. I mean, the, the, the church and Christ. In the great harvest of this age, the stalks of grain are the souls of people in the field of this world. One day they will be separated, the true grain from the false chaff, because Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. The summer gap between Pentecost and the trumpets has now been roughly 2,000 years. The church has been laboring in the Lord's fields, but we're obviously nearing the end of the age. And I not only know that because Israel is back in the land, but I also know it because we are clearly living in a global time, much like the dark ages of the book of Judges, where every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. It's a time of relativism and humanism and secularism and every other kind of awful ism you can throw in there. We also know that the church is in her last stage of church history, which was given to us by Jesus in the seven church letters of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. What stage are we in? We are in, there's no doubt about it, we are in the lukewarm stage of church history, the Laodicean church age. You know what Laodicea means in Greek? The people speak. Are the people supposed to be the ones speaking in, in the church, or is God supposed to be the one speaking? It's the, it's the church that um, nauseated the Lord. It's the church where he's standing on the outside knocking to come in. I don't know about you, but if you, listen, if you watch a lot of um, preachers on YouTube and TV, they, we have, I've never seen so many false teachers and false prophets. You have to be so careful what you listen to and what you hear. They will say a lot of truth and then throw in something that just goes, oh, red flag. Turn him off. The churches are compromised. Why aren't you hearing in-depth teaching in your churches, most of them? Why do so many of you say, well, I never heard that before? I don't, you know, why is America in the state we're in? Because of the pulpits of America. It's the church's fault. Judgment begins at the church of God. We wouldn't be here if we had just let them take God out of the schools and pass Roe versus Wade and all the things we're allowing were like the frog in the proverbial pot of boiling, you know, we just keep, and the church keeps compromising more and more with the world. We're in definitely the apostate Laodicean church age. For all these reasons, I know that we're close to the end. And yet, though the gleanings may increasingly become difficult, I mean, there aren't, you just don't see a whole lot of people getting saved these days, unfortunately. Yet, every now and then, he will throw out a handful of purpose to encourage us. Nevertheless, our responsibility, and that's all we can do is what we can do individually, our responsibility is to emulate Ruth in our faithfulness to our task. Remember what we were told about her in chapter 2, verse 17? We learned that she gleaned in the field until when? Till even. To so keep on keeping on. Occupy until he comes. Do whatever you can to influence others for Christ, to spread the word. We are to keep gleaning right until the end of the day. Ruth worked until the end of the harvest. And then, during the threshing, winnowing night, where was the beautiful, clean, spotless, as a bride adorned for her bridegroom, Ruth? Where was she? She was safely with Boaz. 
at the feet of Jesus. The church will be with Christ, safe and secure in heaven. When the harvest is finished and the threshing takes place, she will be with her Boaz. And then, when the long threshing night is over, Naomi, Israel, who was alone and very anxious during that time, will be redeemed. Christ, early in the morning, will go forth to redeem her. She will finally acknowledge that the one descended from Ruth and Boaz and born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, is her kinsman redeemer, the very same kinsman redeemer of Ruth. <laughs> and she, of course, as the mother-in-law of the bride and as the restored wife of God the Father, Yahweh, she will attend the marriage supper of the Lamb during the Millennial Kingdom. Now it's worth noting that after little Obed's birth, the women of Bethlehem congratulated Naomi with a prophecy. They said to Naomi that Ruth's son would be the restorer of her life. And that proved very true, physically speaking, because Obed gave back to Naomi her restored physical life. She had a little grandson in her arms. It says she held him to her breast and she nursed him. She didn't actually nurse him, but she was the devoted, doting grandmother pleasant with him. <laughs> and uh, the prophecy proved true. He did restore her life. Pleasant grandma again. But it also will prove true, spiritually speaking, because great, Ruth's greater son, descended from Obed, will one day restore spiritual life to Naomi. You see, it's also reciprocal. It's not a sin cycle. It's a salvation cycle. Naomi had led Ruth to know and follow Yahweh, as well as to meet and become the bride of Boaz, of Christ. So, you know, Israel will be saved from the fruit of Ruth and Boaz. Are you following me? I know it gets complicated, but it is just all so perfect and so beautiful. How can anybody deny the divine inspiration of God's word? And you see how it is a living book that it just keeps as history goes on and on and reveals itself that we look back at some of these stories and can see so much more in them. So much more. Well, as the literal story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi ended with a very happy ending and a new birth, <laughs> um, the whole story of everybody who has a new birth is also going to end, and they live happily ever after. Amen? Amen? Amen. Thank you, Father, for giving your son to be our kinsman redeemer. Thank you that we were not left to live in despair and die in damnation due to our great spiritual bankruptcy and our slavery to sin. Although the law could not redeem us without marring its holiness, because lawbreakers cannot simply be set free without destroying your holy justice, 
Yet our Boaz, our, your son, Christ, could redeem us, and he did redeem us, not by breaking the law, but by fulfilling it, and then paying for our redemption with his own precious blood. Why did he do that? Because he loved us, and he demonstrated his life, his love, by mercifully taking our place so that neither the law nor his holy justice were marred. We praise your all-knowing, all-powerful manner of providentially orchestrating all things together for your ultimate glory and the ultimate good of all who know you through your Son. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to, the privilege to be gleaners in your field. Thank you that you are the kind, generous, protective Lord of the harvest who not only allows us to dine with you, but who has even betrothed us to be your bride. And so I ask that we would cheerfully and generously allow others in need, as we once were, to glean from the blessings that we have received from you. And since today Israel is back in her land, and the church is nearing the end of the harvest. May we be like Ruth, who worked in your field right to the evening hour. And may we, like Ruth, cleave to your mother-in-law, Israel, our mother-in-law, helping and supporting her until she comes to know in faith that our dear bridegroom is also her kinsman redeemer, the God-man who in his humanity descended, among others, from Salmon the Jew and Rahab the Canaanite and from Boaz the Jew and Ruth the Moabite because of the fact that he is the savior of all, Jew and Gentile. And how we do praise his holy name. Now, Father, we'll be apart for a while, so I pray your hedge of protection around every woman here and her extended family. Use her as salt and light to all those who come into contact with her. May they see Jesus in each of us. May we all be Ruths until we meet again. If it's here on earth or if it's with you at your feet in heaven, I don't know. But just, Father, watch over us, protect us, and may we truly, truly ever be thankful for what you did for us. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.